Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. We're excited to start a new series, Journey to Freedom. And in chapter 1, we'll see that God keeps his promises. Uh, My task is to cover the first uh, two chapters uh, this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, again, open to Exodus 1. I'll I'll start reading in verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmaster over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The book of Exodus is about God. Just like the Bible is a book about God, the book of Exodus is also about God. And what we see in Exodus, uh, besides the fact that God reveals himself as I, I am who I am, and he will be known as uh, Yahweh, Uh, he is a God who saves his people, who gives his people freedom. And the first freedom he has to give them is from slavery in Egypt. And that's what we see in the first 15 chapters. And then in chapter 16 through 18, we'll see how God redeems his people from death in the wilderness. Because as they're leaving Egypt, they're going through the wilderness. You know, to get to the promised land, they have to go through a couple of deserts, actually. And they could have died of starvation, they could have died of thirst, but they don't. Why? Because of God. Because God, the God who redeemed them from Egypt, is also the God who provides for them in the desert. And in the last chapters, as you can see how much press chapters 19 through 40 get, God, in the last part of Exodus, is is not just the covenant-making God, God is king. And he has a nation of people, but they need a constitution. They don't know how to live as a nation. So God gives them a constitution as we know the laws, that we know the Ten Commandments. But there are actually 613 little laws and regulations. Why? Because they didn't know how to live as a nation, and God gives them that. And again, we'll see that as we go through the, through the book. For those of you who like dates, here we go. Uh, we actually have a, a very important event that happens. Uh, and it, everything goes back to one verse in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. The reason we know exactly these dates, this is not guesswork. This is not even educated, work, uh, educated guesses. No, this is fact. And everything goes back to 1 Kings 6, 1 that says this. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of Egypt, 
In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So the fourth year of Solomon's reign was 966 B.C. You take away 480 and you get 1446. So if you remember one date in all this Exodus series is 1446, the date when the Exodus happened. And again, everything from then on, we can work our way back. And we know when Israel entered Egypt. We know when Joseph dies, 1806. And notice how long it takes from 1806 to 1446. It takes about 400 years, right? Have you heard that before? Yeah. In the book of Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham, my people will be enslaved for over 400 years. So God is keeping his promises even though it takes a long time. And those promises are outlined in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. That's promise number one. And I will bless you and make your name great. That's promise number two. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, uh, he says to Abram, To your offspring I will give you this land. So a great nation, a great name, a great land. In the middle of that, to the great name, also there's a great purpose. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the beginning, God wanted to be a missionary God. He was not just interested in Israel. Through Israel, he wanted to bless all the families of the earth. So the question is, did God keep these promises given to Abraham? The answer is yes. And we see that by the beginning of Exodus, and then we'll see by the middle of Exodus, God fulfills his promises given to Abraham. For example, at the beginning of chapter 1 in Exodus, we read that Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, if you read the end of, uh, the, the end of Genesis, you know that only 70 people came out, of, came out with Israel, with Jacob. Only, sev only 70 people entered Egypt. How many Israelites are there in the land now at this time? We know that by, by Exodus 12, you ready for this? There are 600,000 Israelites. This is just men. No women and no children. So by the, book, by the time of the book of Exodus is written, God has fulfilled his promise. Israel is a great nation. Not only that, but they have a great name in the sense that um, the people are afraid of them. They have a great reputation. I will bless you and you make your name great. Name in that time didn't just mean what your name is, you know, Steve. No. He meant reputation. You have a great reputation. And Israel has such a great reputation that Pharaoh is afraid of them. He says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. But you might say, Tiberius, why do you say that God did this? Why do you say that they didn't just multiply? Well, 
you might say it's natural. No, it's not natural. And we know because Psalm 105, verses 23 to 24, tells us that God made this happen. Psalm 105, verses 23 to 24 says this, Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. This is not, nat nothing about this is natural. Everything that happens in the book of Exodus happens because God is not just the God who creates. God is the God who makes a covenant and God is the God who keeps his promises. And he keeps his promises regarding Israel. Israel is a great nation. They have a great name by the time of Exodus. But there's a problem. There's no land. They are in Egypt. And that's a problem. Because Egypt is not the promised land. The promised land is Canaan, as we read in um, Genesis 12. To your offspring, I will give you this land. Abram, Abraham at this time was in the land of Canaan. But again, it is here that God always also says in Genesis 15, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be, afflict be afflicted for 400, 400 years. So what we see in the book of Exodus is a God who gives freedom. So first of all, he needs to free his people from political slavery. Verses 8 through 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The fact that the Egyptians had slaves is no secret. This painting is from a tomb that dates back to the 15th century, which is the time of the Exodus, that shows a slave being beaten by other uh, Egyptians. But this, this expression, come let us, is not there by accident. Moses, as he's writing his second book, he also wrote, come let us, in his first book. You guys remember the story in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel incident, what do the people say? Come, let us build. And the fact that Moses actually mentions brick and mortar again is not by accident. Because the Tower of Babel people did the same thing. They wanted to build with brick and mortar. And now Pharaoh is suppressing and oppressing the people of God by letting them build with making them build with brick and mortar they need freedom from political slavery but let me ask you can god use a time of oppression for his glory yeah yeah Chuck, uh, charles spurgeon puts it like this he says uh, when the israelites had left if if the israelites would have been left to themselves they would have uh, been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian ethnicity, the, the lost identity as God's people. They were content to be in Egypt. They were quite willing to be Egyptianized. One of the ways God preserved the difference between Israel and Egypt was by enslaving his people to Pharaoh. Thus, the new Pharaoh was the original rebel without a clue. The more he made God's people suffer, the more God triumphed. So God needs to free his people from political slavery, but he also needs to free them from economic slavery. And the way th he does that, 
the way Pharaoh enslaves his people, God's people, is by afflicting them. Starting in verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Again, this is a painting from a 15th century tomb, the tomb of Rachmire, a noble in Egypt. I don't have the entire painting here, but basically it starts with people bringing water and then people uh, knitting bricks. It, basically, you've got to start in the lower left and then go up to the right and then back to the left. But they need uh, the clay and then they actually burn it in fire. And the, the next slide will show how they actually they put the bricks under the sun for the bricks to dry out. So we, we, we have actually evidence exactly how bricks were made during that time. So the people of Israel need freedom from political slavery, from economic slavery. They need freedom from social slavery. One way to enslave people is by initiating a state-sponsored genocide. And that's what happens in chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. You see, by killing the baby boys, Pharaoh says a few things. Pharaoh says, God, I don't care who you are. God, I don't care what you want. I don't care what your promises are. And by killing the babies, he wants to kill the fulfillment of the promise. But Pharaoh will never be able to do that. Pharaoh, as one scholar puts it, is the very picture of a man in rebellion against God. He resented God's people, he rejected God's promises, and he resisted God's plan. So as you read Exodus, can you tell me what the name of Pharaoh was? You cannot, because Pharaoh is not mentioned. Think about that. The most powerful man in history at that time is Pharaoh, and we don't know his name. And yet, we know the name of two Hebrew women. God has a sense of humor. Shifra and Pua. Um, when I was at Trinity, I took a class, Egypt and the Bible, I didn't need the class. I just audited it because I wanted to learn about Egypt and the Bible. And I remember James Hoffmeyer, our, my professor, uh, said this. He said, the absence of Pharaoh's name may ultimately be for theological reasons. Because the Bible is not trying to answer the question, who is Pharaoh of the Exodus, to satisfy the curiosity of modern historians. Rather, he was seeking to clarify for Israel who the God of Exodus was. 
And the God of Exodus is the creator God. He's the God who makes covenants. He's the God who keeps, God who keeps covenants. And the God who will free his people from political, economic, social slavery. And I love uh, verse 21 and 22. It's not on the screen, but it's in your Bibles. Because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Actually, that word, he gave them families, exactly that expression appears in 2 Samuel 7, when God makes a covenant to David and says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. It's the same expression. Basically showing that the God of the Exodus is the same God who gives David a covenant and keeps his covenant. But the people of Israel need uh, freedom not just from political, economic, and social slavery. They actually need freedom from spiritual slavery. Before Stephen is being stoned to death, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, he, he says in his sermon before he, he is killed, he says, in their hearts, talking about the Israelites, they turned back to Egypt. See, see what God was trying to do, not just take Israel out of Egypt. He was trying to get Egypt out of Israel. Which one is harder? Yeah, to get Egypt out of the Israelite is harder. Is harder. That's why we need to examine ourselves, my dear brothers and sisters, how much of Egypt is still left in us. God saved us through Jesus Christ and he gave us freedom. But how much of the world is still in us? How much of the world's thinking? Do, do we think like the world? Do we act like the world? Do we speak like the world? Do we dress like the world? Do we sing like the Lord, like the world? What, what do we do? How much Egypt is still in us? Because David, uh, John says in 1 John that when we love the world, we don't love God. Friendship with the world is enemy to God. How much of Egypt is still in us and from what slavery does God need to free us? And from what do we need to be set free? The the speaking team came up with a long list of things. So I'm going to mention a few. But again, don't ask it for your brothers and sisters, for your spouse, for your children. Ask it for yourself. From what do we need to be set free? For, ask personally, from what do I need to be set free? Anger? Fear? Pride? Bitterness? Unforgiveness? Dependence on substance or habit, like pornography, love of money, impurity, apathy. Ask yourself, from what do I need to be freed? Because the God of Exodus is still the God of today. The God who freed 3,500 years ago can still free today, and he does. So if Jesus Christ is now your Lord and Savior, surrender your life to him today. If you're sick and tired of being slave to the sins that encompass you, give your life to Christ today. Don't leave today without talking to one of us. Just grab someone and say, hey, I want, I want to know how to have this freedom. I'm sick and tired of living the life of a spiritual slave. God still saves. We still need the God of the Exodus. And in order to give them freedom, God needs to select a human deliverer and he does so in the person of Moses. That's what chapter 2 is about. Moses is born. 
chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The ESV translated the word fine. Now, how many of you had children and didn't think they were fine? Don't answer that. All children are fine, right? What's interesting is the word used in Hebrew is the word tov, which means good. Remember, Moses, the guy who wrote the first book, is also writing the second book. So in the first book, remember, in the creation story, he saw that everything was what? Good, 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 very good. Tov, 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 tov. We get to chapter 2 in Exodus, Moses was tov. He led some rabbis to suggest that his name was actually not Moses at the beginning, but was Tobias, which comes from Tob. By the way, that's speculation. That's the rabbis. That's the rabbis. Nice story, not biblical. Um, but what's interesting, Acts chapter 7, verse 20. When Stephen again recounts the history of Israel, he says, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful. But he doesn't say he was beautiful in the eyes of his parents. He says he was beautiful in the eyes of God. Because God is the one that's the main character of the story. It's not Moses. It's not Moses. All children, by the way, are beautiful in God's eyes. There's no such thing as illegitimate children, only illegitimate parents. Never call a child, never call a child illegitimate. There's no such thing. Children are a gift from the Lord. Moses is born and God provides for him a faithful mother. Uh, by the way, uh, how long does Jochebed, by the way, Jochebed and Aram, his parents are named in chapter 6. They're not named in chapter 2, but later they will be called. The father's name was Aram and the mother's name was Jochebed. And the Bible says that Jochebed kept Moses for three months and hid him for three months. Isn't it a miracle that a three-month-old was able to be kept from the Egyptians for three months? That's a miracle in itself. But we see God's sovereignty and provision at work. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for, for him a basket made of blue rushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The word for basket is actually the word for ark. It's first used in Genesis chapter 6. Just like God used an ark to save Noah's family, now he's using an ark to save Moses' family. And that again becomes a prototype of salvation. A prototype of salvation. Both Noah and Moses are saved from certain death by drowning by finding salvation in an ark. Noah in a big ark, Moses in a little ark. How is this able? How is this able to happen? The author of Hebrew tells us, Hebrews 11:23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. By faith. These were faithful parents. Because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict not only does God provide a faithful mother but he provides a compassionate stepmother unlike her genocide driven father the Pharaoh the daughter has compassion we see that in chapter 2 verses 5 and on 
Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. She took pity on him. She has compassion and said, this is one of the Hebrews children that his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the children went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. Isn't this wonderful? Chuck Swindoll gets this, uh, what's happening here when he writes, wow, that's terrific, isn't it? You not only get your child back from the edge of the grave, you not only get the official sanction and protection of Pharaoh's daughter, but you get paid to raise him. That, my friends, is no coincidence. That is the hand of God. Do we still need the hand of God? Do we still need the God of Exodus? Oh, yes, we do. It is the God who always provides for us. Uh, verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The fact that a child was named only after being weaned is because of the high mortality rate of children in Egypt at the time. So you would name the child only after the child would be weaned. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moshe. Moshe means drawn out. So in English we have that Moses. And God changes his zip code. And while doing that, he's raising uh, a deliverer right under Pharaoh's nose. What happens for 40 years at Pharaoh's court? Moses will stay there for 40 years. The best institution at the time, the best educational institution at the time was in Cairo, Egypt. And that's where Moses goes to school. Why? So he can write the first five books of the Bible. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by accident. God is putting at the best place even though he doesn't see it at the time, or maybe sometimes we don't see it. His name will appear over 800 times in the Bible from this moment on. And I wish I could tell you that he, he did God's work God's way, but he doesn't. Actually, the Bible tells us that he grows up and messes up. See, he wants to do God's work, but he wants to do it his way. God was going to free his people no matter what. But Moses wants to do it his way. And in chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 11, we are told that Moses, when he had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian being a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian and killed him and hid him in the sand. Remember, God did not tell Moses to kill the Egyptian. That never happened. Chuck Swindoll says Moses was strictly a freelance murderer. In the book of Acts, again, uh, Stephen tells us when this happens. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So Moses messes up and God intervenes. The Bible says that when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, 
But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. How many, was, how many years was he in, the, in Midian? Forty. So 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and during this time, God provides for him a wife in the person of Zipporah and a son in the name of Gershom. Ger means foreigner or stranger, and Shom means here. I'm a stranger here, he basically says. And it is here in Midian for 40 years, he learns how to practice servant leadership, leading sheep. As James Montgomery Boyce says, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And 40 years in the wilderness leading the children to the promised land, proving that God was everything. Is God still everything? Oh yeah. But we have to understand that we are nothing. God is using us because he cares. The end of chapter 2 ends, verse 22 says, Pharaoh died. See, Pharaoh dies, but God is very much alive. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's how the verse ends. God knew. Pharaoh dies, but God is very much alive. So how, much, how alive is your God? How alive is your God? Nahum Sarna says, It was established practice in Egypt for a new king to celebrate his ascension to the throne by granting amnesty to those guilty of crimes, by releasing prisoners, and by freeing slaves. The new Pharaoh who comes doesn't do any of that. The new Pharaoh does not release the Israelites, and he does not commute Moses' sentence. But God is still very much alive. This story is not the story of salvation. This story is a story of salvation that points to the story of salvation. Because God sent for us not Moses. He sent someone greater than Moses in the person of Jesus Christ. See, this story is just a finger pointing towards Jesus Christ. Look at the parallels between Moses and Jesus. Both of them were saved from a genocidal edict. Pharaoh said, kill all the baby boys. Herod said, kill all the baby boys to and under. And yet, God provided for both of them. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. We call these the silent years. But let me ask you, could God have used those for him to write Parts of the first five books of the Bible. What we think as silent doesn't mean God is not active. Never think that just because we think God is silent, He's not active. God is always active. Jesus has a period of silence uh, for His public ministry. We know what he, when He's born. We know one episode when He's 12. And then we jump to when He's 30 years old. Moses will spend 40 years in the wilderness... Jesus will be 40 days in the wilderness tempted by Satan. And by the way, if you read the story of Israel, they failed miserably in the wilderness. We'll see as we, as we go through the book. They always complain. <laughs> they always gripe. Oh, we want to go back to Egypt. So when Jesus comes, 
Jesus succeeds everywhere where Israel has failed. That's why your faith, my faith, is not in Israel. Our faith is not in Moses. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. The story of Moses just points forward to another story, to the true story of salvation, to the ultimate story of salvation. Moses gives the law on Mount Sinai. And when Jesus comes, he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. See, being under grace, not under law, doesn't lower the bar. It raises the bar. And being in Christ doesn't lower the moral bar. It raises it for all of us. So as we think about applying the truth, let's reevaluate our commitment to a culture of life. See, like Egypt, we have a society that treasures a culture of death. Jochebed, Moses' mother, worked hard at protecting innocent life in spite of a death sentence from the law of the land. And we, my dear brothers and sisters, need to reevaluate our culture of life. God is the giver of life, and he's the only one who can take it away. We have no right to take life away, whether it is in a mother's womb, or whether the person is old and in the hospital, or through any other means. We need to understand that life is given by God, and everybody is born they have the image of God in them. Growing up, I sang a song that I'm sure you know. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. That's what Jesus came to die for. Red and yellow, black and white. They are all precious in his sight. We need to develop that culture of life, a biblical culture of life. And lastly, let's trust God's timing when he seems to be absent. It took God more than 400 years to fulfill his promises. But God always fulfills his promises. Maybe you, you're expecting or you're waiting for God to fulfill a promise to you. Uh, I want to tell you, just because you think he's absent or because he's silent, he's absent, he's not absent, he's always active. He always is active. You just have to trust him and trust his timing. And the deliverance and the freedom will come. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for sending your son in Jesus Christ into the world to free us from the bondage of sin. I pray that uh, we will get back to the Bible and to love your word and to be people of life who will cherish and honor and protect life both uh, before birth, at birth, after birth, uh, old, whenever. I pray that we will people be people of a culture of life. May we trust in you even though when we think that you are absent. We thank you that in your silence you can still work. Just like you worked in Moses' life, work in our lives. Bring us closer, bring us closer to you. I pray that you forgive us for the many times when we allowed Egypt in our lives, in the way we thought, we thought like Egyptians, we thought like our culture, we spoke like them, we dressed like them, we, there's no difference. I pray that, that that will be changed and the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act will be a godly way in such a way that your name will be glorified 
your church will be edified and many people will come to the saving knowledge of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.